Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well-known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to live in our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, firmly believe you should treat movement as a lifestyle, not just an activity. That's why Moving to Live tries to bring you a wide variety of interviews from professionals in the movement and fitness fields. If you like what you hear, please leave us some positive feedback on Apple Podcasts. Drop us a message through any of our social media channels. Let us know what you like. Offer us suggestions or ideas for future interviews. Today, we're back with part two with tactical strength and conditioning professional Josh Hockett. I think the information Josh has to provide is valuable for anybody who needs to understand that sometimes getting where you want to be professionally takes going through a number of different situations and taking the benefits from each situation and incorporating it in the next job. Josh, thanks for taking time for talking to Moving to Live. Welcome back to another edition of the Moving to Live podcast. We're back this week with part two of our interview with Josh Hockett. Josh has an interesting background. When we left him two weeks ago, he was working as a fitness coordinator at the University of Missouri. He talked about his path to there and how he left an LLC working with figure athletes and bodybuilders because he missed the collegiate setting. So I guess the question is, or the interesting part of the story is to find out how he went from working as a fitness coordinator in the Midwest to ending up in Italy. And I suspect there are some tales that he can tell and some explanations. So Josh, thanks for coming back and talking to Moving to Live for part two of our interview. Glad to be here again. I know that if you go into a college classroom or if you talk to a lot of people working in the fitness field and you say, you know, if you could do anything or, or what's one of the dream jobs that you'd like to have, they say, you know, I like working in the collegiate setting, <clears throat> whether it's with student athletes or just with students, because you constantly get exposed to people who are generally pretty motivated. Some people are curious and you just meet a wide variety of people if you're on a campus, especially one that's the size of the University of Missouri. Why are you not still there? What was the impetus to say, you know, this was nice, but it's time to move on to something else? Yeah, and that's, that's, there was literally, uh, 
just a couple of things that, you know, kind of spurred that, that change in that transition is it was, uh, again, a timing issue. And it was a, a personnel issue, let's put it that way. There were some people there that I really looked up to and got a lot of mentorship from um, that really helped just kind of develop me as a person and a professional. They moved on to other roles. And um, when, when they moved on, that kind of left the void for me there. You know, the job was still, I was content with it and I enjoyed it. But uh, without some of that, that tutelage and leadership and mentorship, I felt like I had, you know, in my opinion, milk the position for everything I was going to get for it as a professional. Um, and I, I wanted more. I wanted to be able to take on more responsibilities, more um, more duties, other chances to expand myself as a professional. And so, again, being content, it's not like, all right, time to go. got to get out of here. It's just like, all right, let's let's get the feelers back up and just see what's going on. And, uh, you know, I did that. And. It was truly a timing thing because I read there at Mizzou um, on campus. I picked up um, a club industry um, magazine, one of their monthly editions, and there was an article in there about a float fit boss positions. That's what it was actually called. Um, and a float fitness director, what they called them on the ship by title was fit boss. And uh, they also had one called a, a fun boss, which is a recreation director. And the individual who authored this article ended up being the person that hired me and was um, the supervisor of the um, the afloat program with the Navy. Um, and so I, I read about it and talked about these fitness directors and professionals with degrees being on naval ships and traveling around the world on the workups in short times at sea as well as deployments. And I'm like, that would be awesome. That just sounds so cool. Like being on an actual aircraft carrier and going around the world and being with military people and, I mean, and seeing planes take off. I'm like, God, how, how, how would somebody do this? Sure enough, at the bottom, it tells you how to apply. Go to the website. I read up on it. And I'm just eating this up. It sounds awesome. Um, you know, put in my application. And timing couldn't have been better because I get a call two weeks later saying that they have a carrier, the USS Ronald Reagan, had their current director um, put in this two weeks kind of out of the blue and said, yep, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm moving on to something else. So this ship was about to deploy. In five months, uh, even less than that, and carriers must have a float fitness directors and recreation directors, so they had to get this position filled. And I met all of the qualifications and exceeded most of them, so it, it worked out well that what they needed, I had, and I was ready to. It was just me, you know, not married, no kids or anything at the time. I just had to pack up and go. They're like, we're we're up in Seattle, Washington, um, in what they call dry dock. The ship's getting some upgrades and everything ready for deployment. Then we are going to head down to California, San Diego, which is our, our typical home port. And that, that's where we'll change to our home port to. Would that be okay with you? And I'm like, um, let's see, San Diego, California, guy from the Midwest. Yeah, I think I'm okay with that. Um, March, we were supposed to deploy. That was right. This was 2012. Yes, because I got there. Let me think here. I got to Seattle in July of 2012. Um, right about that time, we hit um, sequestration. And that changed a lot of things across armed forces. So the funding got cut and we did not get deployed. Um, so we, we still did workups. You know, we did trainings. We did exercises, evolutions out at sea. But they were, you know, the short week, two weeks, maybe a couple months. We did do a pack, which is a big international naval exercise in Hawaii off of Pearl Harbor. That's about two and a half months. And we, I did take part in that. But never got a full deployment with uh, my two and a half years with the Reagan. And um, that position was, I fell in love with it, not just being able to be, again, a strength conditioning director on a ship, but the population I grew to love, demands of a tactical operator or a tactical athlete, as some people will use. I just loved it. And the, the ingenuity and innovation that you had to be able to utilize um, in the ship's gyms, these ships' limited spaces, limited power access, a, a ship that 
does move a little bit. You've got to take that into consideration. It's not, you know, a, a typical commercial gym like a lot of the luxuries you take for granted. Um, so you find those, I found a lot of those positions where it's like, yeah, that's, you're going to have to find a way to make it work because you don't have the space, you don't have the means, you don't have the the, uh, the access to things you otherwise would. And that, that really forced me to have to grow and challenge me against things that I had never had to face before as a strength coach or as a trainer. And with 4,000 people on a ship between the air wing and the, uh, the, the Navy attached to the ship, you saw the whole spectrum of, you know, true beginners, people even struggling with their fitness to maintain fitness standards, all the way to some of your studs that were trying out for selection with buds. So that helped expand my, my scope of, of individuals and groups of fitness capacities and just the opportunities to grow as, as a coach, as a person, understanding and appreciating armed forces. Um, seeing foreign countries, it was a, uh, just a massive personal and professional growth opportunity um, that I did there. So that was two and a half years with the Reagan. I did get a deployment for eight months with the USS Essex um, for another two and a half years. And I, I deployed to Fifth Fleet, which is basically over around the Persian Gulf area. And um, that's a, what they call a large deck ship, or um, it's one step under an aircraft carrier, which still carries about 4,000 Four thousand bodies, half Marines, half half um, Air Force, and again that was different because it was Fifth Fleet. It was a full deployment. Being on board with Marines and sailors was quite a bit different. And then again, seeing more foreign countries I've otherwise never been to, huge growth opportunity. And let me tell you, you get uh, and I don't mean this in a good or bad way, but you just get to see a difference in the mindset and the the type of athlete, the tactical athlete, and operator that a Marine is versus a sailor. Um, and, and that was interesting. So, and, and I tell you, it, it tested me in ways um, I'd never been tested uh, in, in anything else that I've done as an athlete, as a job, as a person, you know, relocating. When you're spending the better part of eight months on a ship, um, you know, for, I mean, the longest stint that I went with was 55 days on the ship without seeing land. You find out what you're made of uh, physically and mentally really quick and what you can and can't go without. So that was that was a, a growing opportunity for me right there. But I, I love that five years in was it two months that I stuck with that that role and uh, I, I'll never forget it and that it, it sunk with me so deep that I, I changed what my intentions were that's like if I can find a way to stay in tactical as a career for life that is what I will do and I know some people may not be familiar with what an afloat fitness director is when you were doing this were you a civilian or were you a military member Good point. There are 14, to my knowledge, until more carriers start hitting the water, which they are, there are 14 ships that require that position or that billet to be filled. And that goes the same thing for recreation directors, just in case somebody's listening. Um, degreed certified fitness professionals that are the fit boss, and then they take degreed experienced certified recreation professionals, and they put them on all of the carriers. They get both positions, whereas large decks and some of the smaller ships get one or the other based on what they, they feel they need the most of. Um, but you are a civilian, um, you're a NAF employee, not appropriating funds, and you're one of the very, very few positions that is attached to the ship as a crew member that does deploy with the ship wherever they go. And I know you said that there are as many as 4,000 sailors and Marines on these ships. Are you, is there, or were you as a fitness director, were you responsible for programming for all 4,000 of these or just those who wanted it? Or how did that work? No, and that's that's a good point too. It would uh, it would have been quite inundating if they're like, hey, it's just you and you got all these people to keep in shape. Um, from the big picture of programming and the concepts, yes, you're you're the go-to professional, the SME, the subject matter expert. 
but the, the Navy does have um, CFLs and ACFLs, and that's either an assistant command fitness leader or a command fitness leader. And they give you a bunch of support, not only in having their own, um, they go out to Millington and get a five-day course on the basics of fitness and technique and exercise and aerobic, anaerobic strength, all that stuff. So that way they're, they're kind of schooled up. But then there's even a program called MOF, the Navy Operational Fitness and Fueling System, that we get trained on as strength coaches on the ships that we can then lead to develop more ACFLs and CFLs. So you've got a good, I would say on the ships, I had between 25 and 35 of these ACFLs and CFLs that could help enforce some of the policy that could make sure they were attending. Um, they could roll them in, in you know, um, what we call FAP, the fitness enhancement program, if they were, you know, sliding on the fitness standards. And um, that, that helped out because then they could help uh, lead some of the, the classes that I could be there for. It's definitely not just you know, me by myself trying to do all of it. I definitely had good support, but you are the, when, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, when they need some support or guidance on something, they do come to the fitness director. Yes. Equipment purchases, maintenance, floor plans, um, you know, what, what workouts or, or things are we going to do in ports? Um, we did a, a 10K when we were in Dubai that I helped uh, set up as part of our PT, those kind of things. We're talking with Josh Hockett. He's describing his experiences right now as a float fitness director. I know in our first interview two weeks ago, you talked about how changing your diet and adding in resistance training really made a change to your body composition and changed your outlook on life. Can you talk a little bit about when you're on deployment, what is the food like on the ship? Is this something that makes it difficult for those individuals who are really working to improve themselves if they're trying to qualify for special forces? Or is the food of very, very high quality or low quality? Or what can you tell us about it? Yeah, that's a really good question, too. I get two major questions about what life on the ship is. It's like, where do you sleep and what do you do in your downtime? And what's the food like? Seems to be the biggest ones I get. Um, I would say the food quality, now this is coming from a, a fitness nutrition professional, was good. Um, it, there was always um, healthy, nutritious, wholesome food available. There was also, you know, highly processed, you know, sugary, you know, sweet and high fat foods available as well. But I would say the proportion of it was wholesome, healthy, clean foods that is put out by um, Navy Supply. It's developed by dietitians. Um, they've got an actual a great system called Galley Gopher Green, which is applied in both the defects, the dining facilities on bases, uh, naval installations, as well as on ships' galleys. So it's a simple color-coded system where you don't have to know the, the nutrition facts or the macros. Just look at the color-coded card that that food has, and it tells you if it's something that you should be eating pretty consistently and often, mildly, or you should really be avoiding. So with those individuals that were struggling with weight maintenance or fitness standards, I literally simply worked with them on, okay, then if your plate's covered with a lot of red, we have a problem. A lot of yellow, we should start making changes. If you got a lot of green, we're doing pretty well. And then typically that fostered more interest in like, okay, well, what should I really be eating? And we can get into more specifics with each person and maybe some calorie counting, some portion control. But the opportunity to eat well is, is, is it's available. Um, it, it, it's not impossible to eat well. Might not have everything that you're looking for at home. At the same time, because you know we're, we're a dry ship, you can't drink. Um, I think it actually removed a lot of the um, the temptations and the otherwise areas that people would. Some of the, the foods and eating out that just doesn't happen on the ship. So most of the time, it provides a almost de facto controlled environment for people to drop some weight, get lean, control their diet. It's you know food is served at the same exact time: breakfast, lunch, dinner, and mid rats. So you can become very routine and almost like. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, 
a double, not double blind, but a, a, a case controlled case study, um, you can just, you know, go through Groundhog Day each day. And if you're consistent, as we all know, consistency <laughs> with nutrition and working out usually delivers the best results. So I did not see it being, uh, you know, impossible or any harder. And in some cases, I think it was actually a better environment the same way I found out when I had my transformation because it's so controlled. You can't deviate very far. You can't give into some of the temptations. You can't run down to the grocery store and get the soda and the cupcakes. Um, it, it controls for a lot of those opportunities and, and outside influences that you would other ha otherwise have. So the vast majority of the time, people came back from deployment in really, really good shape, actually, where anything just lost some weight by the, the, the general nature of being on the ship. And I don't mean that in a bad way, like they were starving, not at all, but just that you know they, they got rid of the things that were otherwise causing them to not be able to lose weight or they just got better control over things. So it's, it's, uh, it's well designed. It works well on the ships for nutrition. We're talking with Josh Hockett. I know I first connected with Josh when he was in a different position than a float fitness director. He was the director of food and fitness engagement for Bear Crop Science. And one of the things I immediately noticed about Josh is he is a very good photographer of what I call in a positive way food porn. My question, to, my question to you, I guess, is how did you make the decision to go from working on a Navy ship to going to work for a large corporation, especially given what you said a few minutes ago, that your goal was to eventually end up working more exclusively with tactical athletes? And kind of as a follow-up question on that, how did your photography career of taking pictures of food correspond with being able to maintain a healthy diet because looking at some of these pictures, if you were eating all of this food, you would be more than the 240 pound 14 year old you were. Yeah. Well, let's see. Uh, in, that's, that's an interesting question there too, because in the beginning I did not want to be tactical into the, you know, to that point that I left the, uh, the Navy position as an afloat fitness director. Um, I didn't want to leave to the day I walked off the ship. I didn't want to leave that the nature of that position, what I did day to day with the sailors and Marines on the ships, the, the context that it existed in, and this is, it's, you know, you can look it up and find out the positions, the details, and, you know, things like pay and promotions and advancements, um, you know, being able to expand for and look for promotions and, and, and ways up. There's just the, the nature of all the positions designed. There's not many there. Um, you can switch ships uh, throughout your career without much, you know, issue at all. You can go to a deployed forces support position where you're supporting other fit, fitness and recreation directors on the ships. You can go to a base installation and be a fitness specialist or a fitness director there. Um, but those there's are much fewer than there are actual fitness positions on the ships. So unless you're comfortable just going to other ships or east or west coast or you know staying at one installation. Um, that's really the limits that you have there. So if you're content with that, you could do it. I know some of my peers who have, and they're perfectly fine with it. I wanted to be able to move up to a higher level within Navy fitness, like a policy level, something where I was changing things from the top down across all the ships across, you know, the globe for the benefit of the Navy and just didn't quite see some of those positions there. And being in, you know, a, a city like California where, it's, it is expensive. It's costly. You know, I wanted uh, I wanted a means to where I could start a family, have my own place, and I just didn't see it happening at, at that point or in you know, the near future, you know, a year or two or three down the road. I'm like, I'm going to have to make a career change if these are things I want to do. Started looking at, and I, I kept count, I kept an Excel sheet of a spreadsheet of the positions within the tactical I was applying for. Many of them contracted. Um, some of them, you know, work contracted. Some of them were with uh, USA Jobs. Some of them were 
GSA, some were, uh, uh, what is it, uh, math positions, and either they were at, the pay was much lower than it was already at, um, the responsibilities were less than I already had, they were short-term contracts of a year or two, I wanted something more permanent, spousal preferences, veterans preferences, um, there were a lot of technicalities that I just kept missing the ball on. After 38 positions, I said, okay, it's been 10 and a half months, it's been 38 positions, had a few first and even secondary interviews, but there was something that either got me bumped out on a technicality or something that made me um, you know, take it off the table. I'm like, I, I gotta move something. I can't just keep applying in one of these positions. It's just, it's not working out. So I'm like, let's expand the bubble a little bit outside of tactical and see what's there. So I did. The first two positions I applied to a private sports med facility in Hudson, Wisconsin, and Bayer Crop Sciences at that time, Monsanto. Within a week, I had a phone call with both. Within a week, I had a second phone call. A week of that, I was doing on-site interviews with both. I'm like, well, geez, if I would have known this, maybe I should have expanded the bubble a little bit earlier. And a couple of days later, I had offers from both of them as well. The big catch there was, you know, do I take the position that seemed a little bit more short-term because both strength coaches prior had left after three years and be back closer to family in Wisconsin, or do I take the position that is brand new as a uh, the director of food and fitness engagement at a, a massive company that's known throughout the world like Monsanto and be able to you know, impact change in people's nutrition and fitness around the world through their understanding and exposure to food and food production and fitness. Obviously, I went with the latter because it was a new position and you know nobody had kind of set the norm for what that was going to be. I was going to get to make this position pretty much what I wanted it to be. And they needed a fitness professional with a lot of experience in different areas to you know take the helm and tell them how fitness people perceive food and nutrition and what matters and what doesn't, who are the heavy hitters, who are the influencers. And as somebody who does, you know, the, the whole pictures with food and and likes being kind of a, a culinary maverick, so to speak, on my own, it played in some of my interests. And so I took it. And then I ended up doing that position for about six, no, 17 months is how long I ended up doing that role with, with, uh, with Bayer. And again, I love my team. I love my supervisor. I like the position. But the one thing I did find in the longer I was in that role is that I missed, really missed. And the, long, the more time that went on, the more I missed it, was being a hands-on tactician, tact, a hands-on tacticianer of, of, of strength conditioning, of fitness, of programming, being in a gym. I missed it big time. That doesn't take away from anything that I did with that position because public speaking and, and being able to learn from the team and about food production and industry was fascinating. But sometimes we're just wired for a certain thing and being a hands-on, in the trenches, um, applied person of fitness and strength conditioning, I just, I couldn't get away from it. I missed it. And as they say, you know, if you're going to do something, go, go through life doing something that you are incredibly passionate about, no matter what the hours are, no matter how hard it gets, you still love what you can do. And that was, that was tactical strength conditioning for me. And uh, to, again, without going too far down the rabbit hole, Got word from another peer that there was a contract open for this position in Italy. It was special operations. It was in the number one country I've always wanted to get back to since 2007. It was at least five years long, so it had some permanency to it. The pay was good. The relocation was good. Everything that I needed to be there was, was all in line. So I was like, yes, let's do this. We started signing paperwork. We looked at contracts. And it came together within about a two-month period, and I was—I I couldn't believe it was actually happening because it was that dream job was finally like dropped in my lap, and I couldn't pass on it. Again, being content with everything I did at Bayer, I just couldn't pass on a golden opportunity that just fell in my lap. I had to take it. 
We're talking with Josh Hockett. I think one of the things, if I'm listening correctly, to get to the job that you're in now, you knew you wanted to stay or you wanted to work with military, but it didn't just work out. It took 40 plus job applications before you got to where you are now. Is that correct? From the time that you were uh, direct? Yep. If you count count those last two and then the one I took with Bayer, you know, that again took me through a left turn, but the things I learned there transitioned very well. I, I can always bring those with me. We all eat. I still have an enjoyment for food. Um, but yes, 40 positions were applied for over a 10-month period to eventually get led to where I'm at now. I know one of the things my dad always said when I was looking for jobs, he said, if you think you might be interested, send a resume because it doesn't mean you have to take the job and they're trying to convince you that, that you want to come to them in addition to you trying to convince yourself, convince them that they want to hire you. So on the one hand, 40 sounds like a lot. On the other hand, if you ended up eventually where you wanted to go, you probably gained a lot of experience and learned more of what exactly you were looking for and not looking for. Yeah. And just a special comment I'll make is being in the position with Bayer for that 16, 17 month period, I had never stepped away from being a tactician or a hands-on applied professional since, well, gosh, I, I would say I mean, for sure I was working full time as a, a, um, a graduate assistant at Wisconsin in my, my internship there. So that was 2009. I had never stepped away for more than a month. Again, I went back, to, I went to Italy, Sicily specifically for a month back in November, 2007. That was the longest stint I ever went away from that career industry field. And it made me appreciate how much I loved even the hardest days, longest days of being a strength coach, my internship with the Brewers, putting in 16 hour days. Yes, 16 hour days for homestands. And then even being on the ship for that 55th day before we hit a port call, I, I still kind of envied what I got to do in those settings compared to not being able to do it, you know, being behind the desk more often than not. That, I, that, that told me right there, that one thing, even on your hardest day is the thing you miss. That's the thing you were meant to do as a professional and you can't deny yourself that. And along those same lines, I'm curious, how did the, uh, for people who are listening, who have a difficult time controlling their diet, how do you manage to take the pictures of the phenomenal food? This is a little outside of the career career goals and career career jobs, but not gain a significant amount of weight. Well, uh, there's three points to that, and I try to be careful with a lot when I do the pictures. I don't want people to think, "Oh, he eats this stuff every day, all the time." You know, this is his diet. You're again, you're seeing the highlight reel of that week's probably food choices of that whole week. There might be three or four meals that are wow, that looks delicious. You know, it's probably not that the healthiest thing. And that's just it. It's maybe three or four meals of the, I'm one of those six meals a day guys. So it's less than 10% of my diet is that stuff. And if you walk, if you look at the pictures, they're portion controlled. It's not massive, you know, just these huge portions. And in some of them where it may look like, oh, it's, you know, it's this thousand calorie French toast plate. A lot of the meals that I make, there, I would say half of them are renditions of something you would otherwise find at a restaurant that I make healthier. And that's the part I like doing is that food can look good and taste good and still be remotely too very good and wholesome for you. It doesn't have to be crap. You know, you can, I've found many, many ways to make otherwise unhealthy dishes um, or, or things that you would look for, whether it's baked goods, it's frozen goods, ice cream stuff, or, you know, uh, you know, like, um, um, what's the term I'm looking for? Like, a, just stick to your ribs, down home, cook comfort food. There's ways to make these things more healthy and still taste good. And that's, that's part of the challenge of kind of being that culinary maverick, like I said, 
it's like, okay, so you're, there's this lasagna that you like. Let's find a way to make that healthier so you can enjoy it, have your cake, and eat it too. You've described a pretty accurate uh, path and a relatively long path to get to where you are today as a tactical strength and conditioning specialist. I suspect that there are a number of people who are listening who are not familiar with the military who would be surprised to learn that the Air Force has tactical people. I mean, most of us have heard of the Army and Delta Force, and we've heard of the, uh, the, the Navy and the Navy SEALs. Talk a little bit about your knowledge and how you came to understand that there was also a, or an Air Force branch of Special Forces and how working with Air Force Special Forces differs from the Special Forces or the people training for Special Forces when you worked with Navy uh, and, and Marines. Yeah, and, and when I was with uh, Navy, I got some uh, early exposures and they were few and far between, but it was enough to get me very excited and interested in these small changes in this, I should say small changes, but the, the changes that could be implemented that would lead towards big outcome differences with uh, guys trying out for BUDS, uh, with uh, the Marines, they try out for MARSOC, uh, Marine Special Operations Command, and the, the programming that, that needed to be done for them had to be very, very strategic, very progressive to assure that not only were they resilient enough to you know, make it through these different selection processes, but that they could perform and actually do the tests that needed to be done to be selected for, whether it's Mars soccer or for the, the SEALs uh, through BUDS training. And I enjoy knowing that how I program for them and how well I can program for them or inconsistency was going to lead, could very well lead towards a lot of it's mental. I would say more of it is mental. And that's hard for me as a strength coach to say, but assuming that they're equipped mentally with the resiliency and the fortitude to make it through these selections, you've got to make sure that their body has the capacity to make it through just this grueling, grueling above and beyond type training. And I took pride in them that I could program and challenge myself to develop programs that these guys would benefit from. In some small way, I would make them a better operator with a better chance of succeeding, not just in becoming a SEAL for the sake of being a SEAL or a MARSOC, but that they, they could then go be a special operations warfighter and they could in, inevitably defend my country better because of what I did for them in some small way. And that that piece just gave me a lot of pride in knowing I could do that using my aptitudes and my background. It wasn't just about winning a championship or winning a game or a title. This person was going to go and defend my country and I wanted to make sure that they could get home with their family because they were physically ready to do so. And just like whether it's MARSOC, it's the SEALs, it's DevGru, it's Delta Force, uh, Rangers, the Air Force does have its own um, AFSOC, Air Force Special Operations Command, and there are within there, there are combat controllers, PJs, pararescuemen, which is the ones I work with, um, um, uh, uh, SOWT, Special Operations Weather Technicians, and then there's two similar roles Crows and Stows, uh, combat rescue officers, and um, strategic, or uh, what is it, um, special tactics operators. So different segments all within AFSOC. Typically, the PJs is the one that gets most of the um, awareness, and because their training it is different, it's the hardest of all the different special operations training within the Air Force. And that's because of the nature of what that what they do, the equipment they have to understand, the tactics and missions that they go on. And again, they're, they're rescuemen. They go in and get out the other pilots or any other type of armed force members that needs rescue in hostile territory. So they're not only medical technicians at a caliber of an EMT and beyond, but they're also trained within you know other tactics of 
of wilderness survival, of mountaineering, of, you know, being able to do things within, you know, that you would do in like cave diving. So they, they are some of the most comprehensively trained um, armed forces war fighters that I've seen. And again, I've been here six weeks and seeing it with my own hands and eyes and talking to the operators has been pretty eye-opening. And, and I'm just growing and learning with it by the day. And I think one thing that you touched on a little bit that I think very often when people are involved in the fitness field and the performance field that they forget, and I think you hit it, hit the nail on the head with that, to paraphrase you, with the strength and conditioning that you're doing with these individuals, the strength and conditioning is a tool for what they can do for their job. It's not a matter of saying, how much can you lift? How fast can you run? But rather, how can I give you exercises and a program that will allow you to maximize your performance for your actual job that you have to do, even if you don't maximize or, or max out in the weight room? Would that be an accurate way to describe it? Yes, I think you even phrased it better. One of the things I'm trying to get through to them on a conceptual level is the understanding that everything we do in the gym is a process of adaptation and progression. You do not need to be the fastest, the strongest, or the quickest in the gym to be a good operator or even a good, yes, to be a good athlete by the strictest definition of the term. But my job is to make sure you adapt in here so in the field you succeed and you're more resilient and you come home. And as, as that comes through, I think they're starting to see that we are not just working out, we are training towards an outcome. And then they can start to see where I'm coming from and they appreciate why each exercise, each rep, each set, each heart rate prescription has a place and a purpose. I'm curious, you've had some experience working with college athletes, you're now working with elite tactical athletes. I suspect if you look at the ages of the college athletes versus the tactical athletes, the tactical athletes may be a little bit older, but what are some similarities and differences you've noticed when working with these two groups of individuals? Uh, I would say the maturity level, again, the age is, is I would not, well, there's a larger spectrum of age. That's for sure. There's some guys that have just coming out of the pipeline, you know, that are in their Mid, uh, mid to late 20s, and there's other guys that might be in their late 30s yet, and they're all active paratroopers. Um, but the maturity level um, is different. Um, these are some of the smartest, keen, most observant people I've worked with in any any uh, strength conditioning-based role. They are, they, they're, they're smart, and especially in this regard, because they're medically trained, they understand physiology well. Um, in, in any role, it's you have to be okay saying, I don't know, because these guys will catch bullshit. And... <laughs> They don't like being bullshitted at all. They, they shoot straight. They're direct. Um, if you treat them with the respect as the professional they are, they will give it right back to you. Um, it's, it's, so it's a maturity level, and it's, it's a professionalism that's different between the collegiate athlete and these guys. And a lot of this is truly a coaching aspect because they really do get fitness, and they like fitness. They're driven to do it, and a lot of times that can save them from themselves. Um, it's 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 not it's telling them showing them how what they already know can be enhanced or optimized versus at the collegiate level sometimes it is teaching them something for the first time then you can coach it up here it's they know it i'm coaching you to use it better i'm curious also along the lines of that have you had the opportunity or will you have the opportunity to go out on some of their trainings so you could actually practically experience what their demands of the job are one of the first questions I asked when I got here is what would the opportunity be for any kind of field exposure, whether it's weapons, whether it's tactics, whether it's actually getting up in one of the um, one of their, um, uh, their HH-60s, the helicopters, so I can see what's it like when they're in full gear, how high are they coming out of when they jump, 
Um, you know, what, what's it like climbing up a ladder that's free hanging? These things I'd like to be able to see to better program. Um, and they said that the basic the words I got is we can make some of that happen. And that was a, a really good day for me to know that I not only as a strength coach who likes to see these things, you know, get that real exposure, but um, it's uh, it looks like that kind of thing will happen. It has not yet. It's only been six weeks, but they're, they're going to work that into some of my training and professional development as well. I'm also curious. I know if you get a bunch of fitness professionals together, one of two things typically happen. Either they all bitch about their current situation and the bad things that are going on, or they all sugarcoat about how everything is wonderful. And inevitably you hear about they have requests or demands or their jobs are controlled by a variety of people. With the position you're doing now with with the uh, Air Force, who decides what the programming is or what the needs are? Is this something that comes from the military saying, we need these guys to be able to do this? Or do they come to you and other fitness professionals and say, look, you need to design something because these are the physical demands of the job. Yeah. And that was, again, I needed to know what is it exactly that I'm develop, helping these guys develop to do besides being successful operators and having good long careers in and outside of the air force. But there is a tier two operator physical fitness test that all air force um, special operations will need to do starting in October. And it's, it's going to go into place come October in that, that testing battery is something I am preparing all of these guys to not just, you know, barely pass, but I'd like to see them all pass with flying colors. Um, remember off the top of my head, I believe there are eight different physical fitness tests that are by no means easy um, that they have to be prepared to be able to do from rocking to um, agility to speed to strength, um, grip strength, um, swimming capacity, rocking, I said rocking. Um, these aptitudes they will have to be able to do and do well come October. So that is something that comes from um, AFSOC from Air Combat Command, Air Force Education Training Command, and uh, I believe it's all going to be merged in October, and that's why this new testing is coming out, but making sure they can pass that is, is one of my primary objectives um, on paper for actual fitness standards, but then again, the big picture is I want to make sure that you succeed on the deployment and a mission, and that you are healthy and able-bodied when you leave the Air Force and you've developed and taken some of these habits with you as well. And I know you're one of six members of your team. How many yeah. athletes or, or tactical operators do you work with? I know you mentioned that when you were on the ship, you had people underneath you, as many as 25 military members who had been trained, but you were kind of the head cheese, for lack of a better term, for developing the programming. Here, how many individuals do you generally work with? Is it a smaller number? Yeah, and I can't give exact numbers, but it's less than 50. I can say that, and that's a combination of our PJs and our support groups that we have, you know, the riggers, logistics, supply people that help to help the PJs do everything that they do. Um, so it is a much, much smaller group, but because the needs of them are so much more specific, um, there is more focus given to them. Um, we've got our own, uh, basically, um, hangar that we've got our own, uh, our own specific performance gym. We've got our own med unit next to that where we do treatments with, uh, for the training, physical therapy, sports psychology. We've got, uh, two sports med docs. Um, that are armed with military, and then we've got some I, um, IMDTs, some independent medical technicians, making sure that these guys are getting everything they need on both the performance, the rehab, the sustainability, the medical, um, so that they can, you know, that they're, they're operationally ready to do their job at the highest possible level, um, from mind, body, and everything else in between, too. So there are six of us that make up the HPO, that human performance optimization team, and we're serving a collective group of 50. 
We've been talking with Josh Hockett. He is currently involved with tactical strength and conditioning in Italy. To finish up, Josh, you've had a wide, varied career with the direction taken the last few years of saying, I want to work with tactical. I know tactical is hot. The NSCA has their tactical strength and conditioning group. They have a conference. Somebody who's a young professional and is listening to this, what are the one or two recommendations you'd make for them if they want to start to move in the direction that you've moved into? I would say get involved with the NSCA, hands down, specifically the TSAC, the tactical strength conditioning branch of that organization, because I feel they're, they're truly spearheading and acting as a pioneer in the growth and maturation of the tactical field. To find yourself a mentor, somebody who's been in the field, who's working in it now, who's got experience across different branches or even within the same branch, but they've got some seniority working with the military population because it is different than definitely different than private personal training or general public. It's different than high school strength coaching, collegiate. It's even different than pro sports. Um, it is its own animal with its own demands, its own nuances, in its own uh, demographic and population uh, peculiarities that make it different. Um, so getting that mentorship, um, it's, it's something I wish we had more of going into the Navy role. I had to learn through the school of hard knocks. And having seen that, I've told myself that if I get the chance to mentor others, um, and I see somebody that's that's hungry for it, I would jump at that opportunity to help them out because this this domain of tactical still being young will need well well groomed, well prepared strength conditioning professionals, men and women alike, to help our armed forces members succeed. So I would say find a mentor. Do not be afraid to reach out to someone like myself or other individuals that, that are, are offering things like that in the TSAC report. Obviously they're involved, they want people to learn things, they're contributing to the industry there's a good chance they would be open to mentorship as well. We've been talking with Josh Hockett. Josh is currently tactical strength and conditioning specialist in Italy with the Air Force. I think he's given us a broad-based background of what it took to get where he is today. I think the three key things he took away is if you're in a job that you like, it's probably going to have long hours. It's probably going to take time to get to that job. But the important thing is if you know what you want, keep shooting for that goal. I think the the fact that he applied for 40-some jobs before ending up with this job is an example of perseverance and also a recognition that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Josh, I want to thank you for taking time away from your job in Italy for talking to Moving to Live. Thank you much for having me. This was, uh, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving.